If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. Happy New Year and welcome to 2017 and a brand new podcast for calling... The world according to Zig. I'm your host, John Ziegler, and this endeavor is the newest of free speech broadcasting. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. There you can find an explanation for the basic history of this show, as well as how we got to this point of this being our very first podcast. Up until Christmas Day of 2016, this was a nationally syndicated Radio show heard on 24 different radio stations across this formerly great nation of ours, but for a variety of reasons. Starting in 2017, we have decided to make this into a podcast, something I'm very excited about for a number of reasons. And since most of the people listening are probably at least somewhat familiar with the old radio show, which lasted a little over two years, and which is I ended uh, just on Christmas Day, our last broadcast was memorable to say the least having almost nothing to do with me, but having to do with the fact that my daughter, my four-year-old daughter, Grace, was the final guest on the radio show. And boy, did she knock it out of the park in ways that I never even possibly anticipated. Do yourself a favor. Go ahead and go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and watch the video. And you can also hear the audio, but the video is even better than the audio. Watch the video, the YouTube video, of my daughter Grace on the first segment of the final edition of this program as a radio show. It was flat-out hilarious. And not only is it hilarious, but she gives by far the most succinct explanation for why we were ending this as a radio show. To her, it was very simple. It's costing money. (laughs) That's right. It's costing money. Now, she was not just a little bit certain that this was the reason why we were ending the radio show. It's costing money. She was really certain. By the end of the one-segment interview, she was rather emphatic about it. (laughs) Now, I was rather baffled as to where Grace even got this idea. Nevertheless, being so certain about it that she needed to mention it at least four or five times on a nationally syndicated radio show. (laughs) And putting the pieces together, we kind of figured out what happened. And I think it's why Grace was so jazzed up about it. (laughs) Because (laughs) what happened was we never told her anything about this. In fact, we never even I I told her, I guess, that the the radio show was ending because she really, really liked the show, and she liked being on the show, and she asked me about the show and all that. And that was actually one of the saddest parts, if not the most difficult element of ending the radio show, was because Grace was really into it. But we never said anything about why it was ending. And on the way over to do the show, she apparently overheard my wife talking to her mother. And my wife must have used the phrase, it's costing too much money. Now, had we told, this is the way human beings work, especially children. Had we told Grace, okay, 
Grace, there's one thing we want you to say on the show. You must say the words. It's costing money. Had we forced her to do that, even if we had said, you know what, there's candy in it for you. No chance she ever would have done it. None. Zero. But instead, because she overheard her mother saying it, now it's a secret. Now it's something she's not supposed to say, even though I didn't care. I thought it was hilarious. But in her mind, this is something that we're not supposed to talk about, which means that's exactly what she's going to talk about, which may make her a great talk show host someday if there are such things by the time she gets older. Certainly not in radio, but maybe television. She's definitely good-looking enough for television. So that's why she was, in my view, so into telling the audience why it was the last radio show. It was almost as if she was Charlton Heston in the movie Soylent Green. (laughs) If you're familiar with that movie from the early 70s, Soylent Green is people! Like she has this secret that she must tell the audience. It's, it, and she was letting you in on this secret. In fact, if you watch the video, it's very clear. She's even grabbing the microphone. Wait, wait, I need to tell them what's really going on here. It's costing money. All right. Now, that was the simple answer for why the radio show ended. It's not the full answer. The full answer is in a column that I wrote, uh, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I wrote the column for Mediate. I write columns about two or three, sometimes four times a week, depending on the news. Uh, for Mediate, mostly having to do with media issues, and I go into great detail about why I felt that this was the right decision to end the radio portion of this weekly show that we've been doing on Sundays and I've been doing for uh, a little over two years now. And it was absolutely the right decision. But like a lot of decisions, there were a lot of aspects behind it. No question about it that Donald Trump's election as President of the United States was a part of this equation. Now, it's always difficult to say how much. To me, it was the deciding factor. If Trump had not been elected president, I think I'm almost sure that I would have continued the radio portion of this broadcast at least somewhat into the new year because the investors were still willing to go and do pretty much whatever I wanted to do, which is amazing, and I'm very thankful for that. But I didn't want to waste their money. I didn't want to keep banging my head against the wall. And when Trump won, I knew there was no way for the show to expand in the new year beyond the 24 stations we were on. And we probably were going to end up losing some stations depending on the circumstances. And that's because Trump has changed talk radio. And I had been holding out some hope, although this was not, and I need to emphasize this, this was, had nothing to do with my view on Trump at all. Because I was not confident that what I'm about to tell you was even going to happen. But there was at least a chance that had Trump lost or lost significantly, and it was obvious even to me, even though I was wrong about him winning, I, I knew he was not going to get blown out going into the last couple of weeks of uh, the campaign. So the reality is that had Trump gotten beaten badly and a lot of talk radio hosts had some egg all over their face, that theoretically the landscape and talk radio could have changed and that an anti-Trump conservative libertarian talk show host could have had some traction, gotten some, a foothold in the market, depending on how the ratings went, you know, there would at least been hope. See, I'm a big into hope, not not the Barack Obama version of hope. But as long as there's even just a sliver of hope and it's worth fighting for, I'm there with you. Once all hope is gone, I, I pretty much say, OK, that's it. I'm done. That's that's generally my M.O. So you give me one percent hope. I'm all in. You give me zero. Eh, goodbye. And Trump selection and then Leah Brandon my co-host uh, for most of the last uh, two years, basically quitting on the air indirectly because of the whole Trump thing. I addressed that in the article as well. And you can hear back uh, shows at freespeechbroadcasting.com if you're interested in the full explanation of what happened there. 
which is fascinating and, and <laughs> amazing on so many different levels. But that uh, uh, played a role, but really was not that decisive. I easily could continue the show on my own, and there would be some theoretical advantages to that. But when Trump won, there was never going to be any change in the talk radio landscape. People like me would be seen as losers, back the wrong horse. And most importantly, I'm not appealing to the the core audience on talk radio. And there's no question in my mind that the core audience in talk radio has dramatically changed in the last year or so. And the hosts are not causing the change. The hosts are going with the change. The audience is what changed, or maybe we just found out what the audience always really was and never had a Donald Trump to expose it. But the reality is, people like Sean Hannity, who went after me again after the show ended up having its final episode. In fact, Sean Hannity went after me on Twitter harder after I decided for sure to end the show and actually did end the show than he did when I was talking about theoretically ending the show, partially because of Trump. So he, he, he went on a Twitter attack on me, including tweeting out numerous times the video. By the way, thank you, Sean, for doing that because it got a lot more views. I, I do appreciate Sean Hannity tweeting out the video of my daughter on this radio on the radio show on its last uh, program because uh, a lot more people saw it. But, boy, Sean Hannity, talk about uh, renting some space rent-free, apparently, because I'm not getting any money out of it, in somebody's head. There's no question I'm up all in, all up in Sean Hannity's head. No doubt about that. Because uh, when you got as much money and as much fame and you were the winner, you're the winning side, Sean. You won. Congratulations. Uh, for you to go after a nobody like me seven or eight times on Twitter uh, simply because um, we disagree about Donald Trump, uh, that to me is pretty telling. I never provoked him at all on that. I've been very critical of Sean throughout the entire campaign because I think Sean Hannity was one of many, but probably the most prominent, to completely sell out to Donald Trump. And he is, the tail is now wagging the dog when it comes to talk radio audience. And so Hannity realized where the audience was and he moved to where the audience is. And the audience, this is where the problem is for me, not just that I'm, not a pro-Trump guy, I'm an anti-Trump guy. But the biggest problem is that this has now become a cult. See, if this was still based in rationality and just an honest disagreement over who somebody is or what they believe in or the best direction to go, this is not about my guy lost the primary and I just, you know, want to take my ball and go home. No, not even close because I've had candidates uh, that lost in primaries before, and I was all in when it came to the general election candidate. But Donald Trump is a very, very different animal. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. Yeah, that's number one problem right there. I have no idea who he is other than what appears to be a liberal con man who's unqualified for the job. And so the reality is that the audience now sees Trump as a godlike figure. Not all of it, but a definite majority of talk radio listeners, based upon what I can tell, now are effectively a cult. And I wrote a separate article, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about the cult-like aspects of Donald Trump, Trumpism, and what has become of the conservative news media. Principles are completely out the window. Again, I'm not somebody that can't bend, can't compromise. This isn't about compromise. This is We're not even in the same, literally the same church. Forget about the pew. If it was the same church, different religion, and Frank, this one's a lot like Scientology. It's a cult. And the people who are following the cult are not people that I want to appeal to. I'm sorry. In talk radio, you have to. But I have no respect for the majority, and I don't know what the percentage is, of the current talk radio audience. I don't like them. I don't respect them. They're not well-educated, you know? Believe me. (laughs) I love the poorly educated. They're not. They're not well-educated. 
They're not even of healthy mind. A lot of them are mentally ill. There is a major mental illness problem when it comes to listeners to over-the-air talk radio. And they have been duped by Donald Trump, and nobody wants to hear that they've been duped. It is far, far easier. I'm going to put this on my gravestone. It is far, far easier to dupe somebody than to convince them that they have been duped. And so I will effectively now be in the business if I continue to over-the-air nationally syndicated radio talk show into convincing the majority of the audience that they've been duped. There's There's no gain in that. Nobody wants that, especially now in this fragmented media era where everybody has tons of other options. You can always find somewhere, whether it's on radio, podcasting, television, internet, whatever it is, you will always be able to find somewhere to find somebody that will tell you what you want to hear, make you feel better about your already predetermined opinions. And that means right now that no matter what Donald Trump says, it's right. doesn't matter how hypocritical it is from things that he has said in the past, how nonsensical it is, how dangerous it is. It does not matter. That's where the audience is. Now, again, not all, but certainly a majority and way too much for a show that was fledgling. You know, we're only on once. We were only on once a week, Sunday nights, late on the East Coast. And that takes a long time to get traction on, especially in this era, on once a week, late on Sunday nights. So two years wasn't going to hack it. We were not an established show. We're on in 15 major markets, but it was not nearly enough. And so I made, you know, I've been fired a lot of times in this business, but I figured, you know what? Before it's all over, I might as well fire myself. So I made the decision to fire myself as a uh, over-the-air talk radio host and transition into what this is, this podcast that we're going to call The World According to Zig. And I'm excited about it from a content standpoint. Obviously, there's negatives to withdrawing from the radio show. Because on the radio show, when you're over the air, there's always the possibility... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and frankly, it's more theoretical than than reality, that you're going to find an audience that doesn't know about you. They're going to stumble onto you. That's much more difficult in podcasting. Podcasting is directed more towards people who already know you and have sought you out. So then the potential size of the audience when it's over the air is theoretically much, much larger. The reality, as I was finding out, didn't follow that, especially in the era of Trump. And so the business model was completely and totally broken. And as CEO of freespeechbroadcasting.com and the, of, the, of the corporation Free Speech Broadcasting, it's my fault. I made some bad decisions based upon what I sa- thought were sound assumptions. And frankly, some people lied to me and I got some bad information and there was some bad luck involved. But... It's on me. It's another part of the reason why I had no problem ending the radio show. I'm a big believer in accountability. I was wrong about the election. I backed the wrong horse from a purely political standpoint. You know what? I deserve repercussions. I deserve there to be accountability. I blew it. Trump won. So, you know what? That's the elections have consequences. That's the price of playing ball. I just wish the other side was going to have any sort of accountability or consequences once it turns out that they were wrong to back Trump because eventually that's going to be the way this will go down. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't think it's going to be super soon. I think it's going to be at least a couple of years. I mean, it'll be clear fairly soon. But the end game won't happen for quite a while, and it might not happen for decades. There are all sorts of ways that we're going to have to pay the price for this Donald Trump presidency. And and I'm not going to talk that much about Trump, especially today. I have a couple things I want to say about him. I, I think that this podcast is going to be very different than the radio show. It's going to be more personality driven, probably more interviews because of the flexibility of scheduling them as a podcast. It'll be less newsy. 
because I'm not I don't have to worry about the over the air audience and people who are just joining the show who have no idea what it's about. So it'll be probably less newsy, more story oriented. At least that's my projection. Who knows how things will actually turn out. But my basic view on Trump is that Trump was a bad deal. I think it's appropriate that Donald Trump is known as a deal maker and wrote his you know famous best-selling book. He didn't write it, but his, his ghostwriter now thinks he's a complete fraud, wrote it called Art of the Deal. It's, it's ironic and appropriate that he's known for Art of the Deal because he's a terrible deal maker. But he's, he makes deals that appear to be good or at least feel good in the short run and in the long run generally don't turn out very well and or rely on him not keeping his word, not paying his contractors, not paying taxes, hoping to be bailed out by his lenders. You know, that, that's, that's a classic Donald Trump deal. Well, the deal we all made as Republicans and eventually as Americans to make him the nominee and then president, it's a similar bad deal. In the short run, there's some benefits. We can claim victory. Hillary was prevented from being president. That's, that's good. That's, that's real good. What difference at this point does it make? I, I'm all fine with that. Antonin Scalia's replacement will be chosen by a Republican, apparently. Whether it'll be conservative, I'm still skeptical, but at least it's not going to be done by Hillary Clinton. There'll be some good cabinet appointments, although there'll be some others that are a little weird. But in the short run, no question, some good things. But the price we're paying for that is enormous. We gave up so much. And I don't want to get into details because I'll do this later on, probably maybe do a whole show on this the week of his inauguration. But we, there's not been nearly enough talk about what has been given up in exchange for this Donald Trump presidency. It's a bad deal. Yep, there's some benefits up front, but it's the old pay me now or pay me later. We're going to be paying for Donald Trump's election for a very, very long time. And I hope we don't pay the ultimate price, but I think the ultimate price, meaning effectively the end of the way this country works, is at least on the table. Not in the next couple of years. He's not Hitler. I'll tell you what, though. He makes it a hell of a lot easier for the real Hitler to come around someday. I'll stand by that. So, and again, I want to talk about a couple of news related stories involving Trump. But let's let me go back since we I've not done a show for two weeks. And since we we made such a big deal about grace and Christmas. And, you know, for those of you who did not hear it, one of the, the funniest or the cutest moments from Grace's last appearance was talking about getting on Santa Claus's good list or bad list. Remember? I mean, so she was very nervous and she she should have been very nervous because she had not been a very good girl this year. And all the threats of Santa Claus and the elf on the shelf, Eli, her elf, that I'm bizarrely in charge of, that is supposed to keep an eye out on her and remind her to be good, none of that really worked. Had basically no impact on her behavior at all. And the day that she came on the last radio show, she had seen Santa himself. And I informed Santa that, hey, look, uh, Grace is maybe not on your good list. She's, she's had a, you know, not a particularly good year. And here's what that sounded like as Grace basically does a Donald Trump and engages in a negotiation. I have to give her some credit. Pretty good negotiating skills here uh, by Grace Ziegler with uh, Santa Claus on the uh, the day of our uh, last live radio show. Here's what that sounded like. Santa, we have a problem, though. We're not sure if she belongs on the good list this year. Is she going to get on the good list? You Hold on a second. Tell you what. You still have one week to be as good as possible okay. to help your mom and dad. I'll try my best, okay? Excellent. <laughs> I'll try my best. Not going to give a hard and fast promise, which I guess, you know, I have to give her credit for that. She didn't want to lie, totally. Uh, but she did not really, uh, um, while she did her best, she didn't really do that well. She was not particularly good. 
So she, her behavior didn't improve very much after the visit with Santa or the, the appearance on the radio show, hardly at all, maybe marginally. But to her credit, she realized this. She understood it. And I think she started to get really nervous come Christmas time. Because on the morning of December 23rd, so two days before Christmas, Grace opens up my door. She wakes me up. She says, Dad, Dad, I got a genius idea. That's what she said. (laughs) I got a genius idea. Oh, really, Grace? What's your genius idea? I'm going to be good for two days. Two days I'm going to be good for, and then I'll be on Santa's good list. Of course, I had to strain to keep from laughing because that's pretty hilarious that her genius idea was, hey, look, I've been bad for 363 days, but (laughs) these last two, I'm really going to make them count, and that's going to get me on Santa's good list. I tried to straddle the fence here. I I didn't want to kill her dreams and maybe – also make it less likely she was actually going to be good for the next two days. But I also wanted to remind her, hey, you know, that's not really the way it works. You, you can't just decide, you know, on like in the old NBA, we're going to play the last two minutes of the game, and that's all that really matters. No, this is a whole year deal. So she, I think, kind of thought that that was, she had actually referenced the genius idea a couple more times before Christmas. So she definitely took it seriously. And then when Christmas came, you know, she was a little bit underwhelmed, a little bit underwhelmed by, by Santa. And that was on purpose because I I was hoping to send her, of course, I don't have nearly full control, but in this particular case, I was able to help influence my wife, which is very rare into sending some sort of a message that Hey, look, um, you know, maybe, just maybe, you, you could have been better this year. And I don't want to make it sound like she's the worst kid ever, but she is. She doesn't listen. I, we, my wife and I are baffled where she gets her attitude from. <laughs> I wish I could. Say, I wish I could say that we really didn't have any uh, theory on that because it's very clear she has both the best and the worst qualities of both of us, and um, and that manifests itself in in some negative ways, like a lot of four year olds. But anyway. So we get done with the the first portion. She doesn't know it's the first portion of Christmas. But um she you know, she's okay. She got some decent things, but not no big Shazam and and she didn't get the car that she had asked Santa for. Well, unbeknownst to her, we had placed her Barbie Kawasaki, I guess you would call it a car slash motorcycle. It's got four wheels. And the thing goes decently fast, I think like up to five miles an hour, we had placed it outside our front door with a big bow on it. But she had no idea. So we we go for a walk every year after Christmas. It's our little tradition in the, I guess, five Christmases now that she's been on the earth. And so we're getting ready to go, and we open up the door, and voila! There's the Barbie Kawasaki with the bow. And, and Grace is literally shocked. Uh, I think in a good way. She's definitely uh, enjoying the Barbie Kawasaki. She didn't deserve it, but we made it clear to her she didn't deserve it. I, I hope that we made the best of a, of a potentially bad situation because I, I think I convinced her that her elf on the shelf had um, saved her ass, basically. I didn't say ass, but that basically the elf on the shelf had made a last-second plea on her behalf to get her on the good list, and that's why she got the Kawasaki. Now, interestingly, boy, it's amazing how quickly things can change in life. Before Christmas, my garage, and it's amazing how life turns out. Never would have imagined this. Before Christmas, my garage had our Jeep Grand Cherokee, which is our main family car, because it's my wife, myself, my daughter, Grace. And my wife is now pregnant. She's, she's due in April. So now we got to start making major decisions about things being very, very different with a foursome rather than a threesome. So before Christmas, we had the Jeep Grand Cherokee, 
and a Ford Mustang convertible. Pretty cool car that I had purchased for my wife back when we were dating and still liked each other. <laughs> Things like that don't seem to happen very much. Uh, at least they're not uh, appreciated the same way once you're married for a few years and have kids. It's remarkable how, how dramatically relationships change. But we're, we're, we're hanging in there. We're doing all right. So we, yeah, that was before Christmas. Jeep Grand Cherokee and Ford Mustang. Currently, my garage now has a Toyota minivan, a Barbie Kawasaki motorcycle in the garage because Grace doesn't want the, it to get weathered. She's very concerned about that because she's got some other toys that are weathered and she does not want the Barbie Kawasaki to end up looking weathered because they've been outside. And a couch that we purchased, which we don't have room for because we haven't gotten rid of the old couch yet. The Mustang is gone. We sold the Mustang. And that was very traumatic for my wife because I think in her mind, that was the end of her youth, the end of her being a cool chick. Now it's for real. One kid you, you might be able to hide and get away with, two kids, and the minivan, it's over. It's all over. But the idea that with the the Barbie Kawasaki is now taking up space in our garage uh, is is pretty stunning how, <laughs> for a guy who never thought he would get married, never thought he would have kids, never saw any of this happening, is is really bizarre world. But we're living in very, very strange times. Now, how we got to there, though, is another story of just how frustrating and difficult life can be. It's amazing how things that really ought to be great, at least in my experience, turned out to be crap. And, you know, this podcast is going to allow me to, because we don't have to worry about these damn commercial breaks, to tell stories that I never would have been able to tell on the old radio show. And for better or for worse, by the way. You know, no talk show hosts ever tell stories that they know are going to potentially make them look bad. But I've never had any fear of that. Now, that might be an indication or at least an explanation for for why my career isn't where it necessarily ought to be. But I've never cared. I've always thought the truth is the truth, and sometimes negative stuff is more interesting than positive stuff. And the audience seems to usually appreciate it. So here's here's the story of how our garage ended up as it is, which should have been a potentially good story and turned into a complete disaster. So, as I've mentioned, my career is crap to where it ought to be based upon some of the things that I've done. My wife is the main breadwinner, but thankfully, you know, thanks to investments I have, you know, we're able to, we're do, we do fine and we're able to save money. Uh, but, you know, the reality is it's, it's not where it should be. So there are very few opportunities I have to make my wife really happy. Now, a lot of guys can say that regardless of what their career situation is. But the reality is that it's few and far between where you really get the the Shazam moment. And so we decided that since we've been saving money and I had an economic plan set out really for the next several years for the family, we're going to do things in a certain order. She wanted the garage redone. You know, we, we... had a bunch of things we needed to do, but in, I wanted to get a new car first, so we got that out of the way before the new kid arrived. So we go car shopping, and for whatever reason, we end up buying a more expensive car than I had previously budgeted. It was, frankly, more my decision than hers, but I figured out a way that we could make it work. But it wasn't going to be easy. It was going to be tight. Not nothing. I don't believe in debt. I'm the opposite of Donald Trump. We have no debt. But the reality is that because we were going to go over budget on the new car, now my margin for error was much lower and maybe non-existent. But I was happy about it because my wife seemed happy with the car. And it seemed, you know, it was, we didn't get a fantastic deal. We got a decent deal. Right time of year to buy. I think it was the right choice for a family of four. My ego is so shot that being a minivan dad doesn't bother me at all. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. 
But then a perfect storm comes in. So we had just done the last broadcast of the radio show, and I very rarely ever sleep after the old radio show anyway because I'm so jazzed up and I always get up early on Monday. So there was no sleep on Monday. That day we ended up choosing the car, though we didn't pick it up. That night, Grace woke me up in the middle of the night, so I didn't sleep that night either. So that Tuesday, after two straight nights of no sleep, we were scheduled to go pick up the car. Now, this was going to be a great moment. One of those few moments where, hey, Zig did okay. Dad did all right. You know, I'm, I'm, my wife is happy for even a brief shining moment. Well, then everything goes to crap. I get out of the shower, feeling pretty decent about things. You know, looking forward, you know, even though I'm sad about the end of the radio show, I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to do this podcast thing. Christmas is coming. We just bought this car. And she hits me with, um, I can't find the title to the Ford Mustang. Now, ordinarily, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. I don't know what the process is for getting a new title. But this was going to cause, if true, all sorts of problems. And the way my brain works, unfortunately, is I start extrapolating very rapidly, like a computer. And, you know, the problem with that is that if you make a bad assumption, then you get a bad result. It's kind of like how they came up with global warming. You know, if, if it's an extrapolation of from a bad assumption. But I digress. So in my brain, I'm already thinking, oh, crap. So now whatever the delay is going to be in getting a new title and the aggravation, the expense of that, we're not going to be able to sell the Ford Mustang in time for the other things that we need to do in the order that I had previously gotten them. But it got worse. That would have been just an aggravation and a pain in the ass. But, you know, I've already got the short fuse because I'm tired and aggravated. And then this hits me. And my wife, because this is the way human beings react, she's immediately trying. She's nervous. She knows I'm going to be pissed about the fact that the title for the car is missing. And she's already gone through her magic box of stuff where all the important papers are, and it's not there. But she's nervous, and so she decides to start to deflect blame. And so she starts to imply that maybe she had given it to me since I'm the person who purchased the car. And I knew that that had not happened. But I also now knew that I was going to have to do a full investigation for the damn title. And in order for me to investigate through all my eye papers, my magic box is a box of shit, okay? Because my life has had a lot of aggravation and pain and disappointments and family troubles and death of my mother in a car accident. And so when I have to go to my magic box, it is painful. It is psychologically brutal. And now I'm already knowing, oh, crap. Now I'm going to have to go through my box of shit, knowing that it's not there, knowing that my wife is projecting guilt onto me, all while I'm now worried about the other implications of not having the title for the damn Ford Mustang. Well, now I'm pissed. My wife realizes I'm pissed. She's pregnant, which means her hormones are all over the place, and she has ultimate moral authority. You know, when you're pregnant, (laughs) the, the woman can never be wrong about anything. So she starts crying. And not just her normal cry, but her her plaintive wail. She's got a wail. And that really gets, it's like the ultimate button being pushed for me. Because I, I know there's now no hope. I now know that our trip to go get this brand new car that we got is completely destroyed. There's no going back from this meltdown. She's in full meltdown all because... She feels like she's screwed up. She knows I'm mad. I'm mad at her. We're pushing each other's buttons. It's getting worse and worse. I now go through my box of shit, knowing that it's not there. 
It was brutal, as I had anticipated, so my mood is even worse. And it's, you know, as I knew, no sign of the title. My wife is saying, let's not even buy the car. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm spending all this money we've saved up this time to buy the car she doesn't even want to buy now. And she's, she's despondent. She's upset. And I'm pissed. And my fuse is gone. It was tiny to begin with. So we get everybody in the car to go pick up the other car. But first, we're actually going to stop. This was a brilliant idea. We're going to stop at the hospital to check in, to go through our, our mock run-through for, for when she delivers in April. Well, I don't know how to get to the hospital. And I make a wrong turn, either out of my own incompetence or because she gave me bad directions. I don't even know which. But I am so pissed. In fact, I'm so pissed on the way there. There's not a sound in the car except this. I don't even know if you can hear that. That's the sound of my two fingernails involuntarily grinding on each other. My daughter's not saying a word. My wife's not saying a word. And that's me involuntarily. I'm so angry about what's going on that this potentially great day has been completely turned to shit over nothing. And when I make the wrong turn, I lose it. Completely my fault. I overreacted to nothing. All I needed to do was make a damn U-turn. But I, it was just too much. I couldn't take it. So I, I don't even know what I said. I screamed at my wife. In the middle of the road, my wife jumps out of, not jumps, she opens the door with my four-year-old daughter in the back with traffic behind us, gets out of the car and starts walking away in tears. I was stunned, blown away. I mean, even for us, this was a really bad fight because when my wife and I fight, we fight. But she walks away in tears. I don't even know where she's going. I don't know the neighborhood. Amazingly, my daughter's not melting down herself. I thought my first, oh my gosh, not in front of Grace. You can't do this in front of Grace, please. Grace handled it amazingly well. Uh, And somehow... After making the U-turn, I was able to convince my wife to get back to the car. And we did end up getting the car, although it was nowhere near the experience that it should have been. But here's the kicker, just to show you how insane life can be. So after this day was destroyed, after my wife gets out of the car in the middle of traffic, potentially traumatizing our daughter, after we screamed and yelled at each other, after I had to go through my box of shit, All this just a few days before Christmas. When we get back home, my wife decides to check in the trunk of the Ford Mustang. And sure enough, there in the envelope where the license plate had been is the title to the car. Now, how stupid is that to even have you kept the title (laughs) for the car in the car for the last however many years we've owned it? like eight years, but he never bothered to check, never looked for it, and there it was all along. So all of this was absolutely, positively over nothing. It was just flat out ridiculous. The whole thing was insane making. That's life. Wonderful moments turned into shit over absolutely nothing. Now, Granted, first world problem, no doubt about it, because we we got a new car out of it and we were able to sell the Mustang, and so now we're back on plan. But just so frustrating about the nature of life and how life works. But we got through it, and my wife and I, I will say this, we fight like mad, but we're good at recovery, which I think is maybe more important. (laughs) If you're going to be married, I think being able to recover is maybe more important than not getting in fights. There's probably a lot of marriages out there. Like my my father and his wife, they claim they have never had a fight in their entire marriage. Which were, what? Seriously? That's not possible. But if they ever did, I don't know what would happen. They, they might have a glass jaw as a relationship. My wife and I do not have a glass jaw as a relationship. We are, we are made of some tough stuff, <laughs> for better or for worse. 
Now, uh, one other Christmas-related story that I got to tell you, which is very telling and has nothing to do with me. And Well, actually, it does have something to do with me indirectly because I en- ended up becoming involved in the story. Deals with a story that was reported in the New York Post about something that happened, apparently, on Christmas Eve night or very early Christmas morning. And this story was sent to me by an old high school friend of mine named Dave Petruca, who has been instrumental in the old radio show getting off the ground and has been very supportive of this, uh, this podcast and of free speech broadcasting in general. And uh, he sent this story to me for a reason, which will become apparent very quickly. Here's what the New York Post reported on Christmas afternoon. EMT, emergency medical technician. Headline, EMT slashed by thugs who stole his presents. And fire, uh, New York City Fire Department, EMT, was slashed and robbed of nearly $3,000 in Christmas gifts, including a drone for a six-year-old daughter, hmm, as he headed to a holiday party early this morning. Stephen Sampson, 41 years old, who was off-duty, pulled over his car to Broxton Intersection just after midnight to sort out his gifts on his way to the Christmas party to meet his cousins. He was leaning over the truck of the car, setting aside the gifts intended for his cousins, when he heard, Hey! Cracker! Hmm? The burly EMT, who's a 9-11 veteran, turned around and saw four menacing thugs. And one of them reached for his phone. I caught him in an arm bar, and he was like, please, sir, please, sir, let me go. But I knew I had him, said Simpson, who could play Vin Diesel's double. It's a big guy. Looks like an NFL fullback. I smashed him in the elbow and felt his humorous crack. He delivered a roundhouse punch on the next guy who dropped to the pavement. I caught him in the jaw, said Samson, who's a black belt in judo martial arts. Meanwhile, he saw the other two goons run off with his $2,600 in gifts. He hurried his Dodge Charger into his Dodge Dodge Charger, locked the doors, and sped off. That's when he noticed blood gushing from his arm and that he'd been stabbed. I started leaking all over the car. He drove himself to the medical center. I was hemorrhaging in the hospital. My shirt was a soaked rag. He didn't tell his wife, Mitchell, about this story saying, quote, I didn't want to freak her out. I just told her, hey, hon, I'm going to be a little late. Hmm. Samson got nine stitches as a group of cops surrounded his bed. I was a big deal last night, he said. Every cop was in there. The borough chief was like, what is he, fucking Superman? The thieves made off with liquor, toys, electronics, a parrot drone for his six-year-old daughter, and iTunes and Ultra Beauty cards for his 16-year-old daughter. But he'd already bought other gifts for them, so they weren't too disappointed, he said. We are a tight family, he added. As for the thieves, he had a message for them. You have to be a real, real low to try to rob somebody on Christmas. Get a fucking job. They're going to find you. Karma's a bitch. That's quite a story. Wow. So four guys attacked this fire department EMT late on Christmas Eve night, early Christmas morning, steal almost $3,000 in gifts. Two of them get beat up. The other two take all the gifts. All of them. Nothing was left. They run off into the night. Never found. No description of them. He doesn't call the police to apprehend the two guys that he beat up, one guy whose army broke? Hmm. Well, the reason why my friend sent me the story was he smelled bullshit all over it. I smelled bullshit all over it. And this is a topic that I have a great deal of passion for and some expertise in because I've been spending a lot of time over the last several years debunking bullcrap News media narratives. In fact, one dealing with Christmas recently where there was a Santa Claus in Tennessee who claimed to have cradled 
a dying five-year-old boy alone in his arms in a hospital bed. I'm convinced that never happened. You can read my article about that at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And sure enough, I got involved in this story as well. And I wrote a column, again, you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about how and why I had great suspicions about this story being bullcrap and how I confronted the reporter, Tina Moore. I confronted her on Twitter saying, are you sure this is right? I wanted to give her the opportunity to tell me why she believed it because my editor at Mediate had called her and said, look, she believes the story. She did her due diligence. She got references on this guy. This seems like the story might not be true, he said, but this seems like the reporting was legit. I'm like, there's no way this story happened. And by the way, if it did, it's a hate crime. Fox News Channel would be all over this. A white guy, the victim of a Christmas hate crime? Are you kidding me? Yet nothing. Later, he did do one interview on CBS locally in New York, and it was obvious he was lying because he wasn't even angry. He was almost amused by the whole thing. Nobody would be amused by this. You'd be pissed off. Well, the reporter, to me, was the personification of everything that is wrong with modern reporting and why the news media is completely and totally broken now. Her response was a complete combination of arrogance and incompetence. I was the bad guy for questioning this. I'm not a real reporter. She is. She told me to shut up. She called me an A, which I've interpreted to mean ass, which I may or may not be, but that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not I'm right about this. I was very nice to her on Twitter. She decides I'm the enemy. Attack me. Not find out what the truth of the story is. Not maybe question, hmm, should I have taken a second look at this? Maybe I should have put the word allegedly somewhere in the article. Or the headline, instead, it's all written as if it's fact. EMT slashed by thugs who stole his presence. Nothing about he says. The reporter on Twitter, this is how I knew for sure the story was bullcrap. She immediately starts to rely on the fact that the the firefighter filed a police report. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. First of all, that's... That's a sure sign when you're you're trying to justify some bad reporting. Well, they filed a police report, so therefore it's legitimate for us to report. No, no, no. There are police reports all the time that have salacious things in them that are not reported because there's no verification and there's reason to suspect that they're not true. You don't throw everything out there in the New York Post and then... This is what she said. If it's proven false, we'll report that. Really? That's the standard. If it's proven false. But the police report thing, I immediately go, okay, she's backtracked. Nothing in here that relies on this filing of a police report in the original article. No, this was true. Not a police report has been filed which states, allegedly, that this person says this happened to them. And so her her response was off the charts with regard to arrogance and incompetence. And sure enough, just as my buddy Dave Petruco predicted, and I was skeptical of this because I thought this guy was going to get away with this lie. But sure enough, he got confronted by the police a couple days later. His story completely fell apart. He totally retracted it. None of this happened. We don't know. By the way, his wife in the her original <laughs> interview stood by him and said, I know this happened. He doesn't lie to me or something like that. Well, I'll be very curious to see <laughs> how Stephen Sampson's marriage survives this because the most likely scenario, much like my theory on that Santa Claus story in Tennessee, is that for someone to go to that, that kind of length, to maintain and create a lie, there's got to be a huge motivation. And for a married guy, the biggest motivation is there's something that your wife doesn't want to know. I don't know what that is. I don't know whether he was cheating. I don't know whether he lost the money for the gifts. I don't know what he was doing. He was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And he had to come up with a story. And he came up with a complete bullshit story 
that the New York Post should have laughed at or at the very least reported with some sort of skepticism. And then when confronted about it, they shouldn't have attacked the guy who confronted them. Me. And then, so I'm right. It turns out I'm right. I very, you know, gently, well, I wasn't too gently, but very appropriately, I tweet the reporter, Tina Moore. I say, hey, Tina, how about uh, an acknowledgement I was right, you were wrong, where's your retraction? How about an apology? I get no response. Then later that day, after I've published my article, and I tweet out the article, she doesn't even bother to read my my column on this because she still doesn't even know her own newspaper has reported that the story has fallen apart. She apparently I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt doesn't even know has no idea based upon her tweet to me that the story was actually bullcrap because she's still holding on to, if it's proven false, we'll report that. Wait a minute. The guy retracted the story. He got charged with filing a false police report (laughs) and she doesn't even know. And so what does she do? Well, in a rational world, right, a world of professionalism, she would then vehemently, passionately apologize to me. I'm so sorry. I acted inappropriately. You were right. I was wrong. Something like that, which I never expected. I knew that wasn't going to happen. Instead, she blocks me on Twitter so I can't see her account anymore. No, no apology. No acknowledgement she was wrong. Nothing. The important part of this, other than the hilarity of this and the arrogance of the reporter is that exposes just how broken the news media is at every level that a story like this could get as far as it could in the number one media market in the country exposes that this is happening all the time. It's because the mechanisms are broken. The machinery is broken For a lot of reasons. Part of it's the business model. Part of it's the fact that human beings are bad reporters by nature. Part of it's the people who are going into news media in this day and age. All they care about is celebrity and a salacious headline and the motivation for clicks and ratings. There's a whole slew of reasons why it is. But this is not an isolated circumstance. This happens all the time. So check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. A couple other news items that I want to quickly get to in this, the first of two hours of this first podcast on the world according to Zig. I got to mention the most bizarre moment involving Donald Trump over the Christmas break. And, you know, he has desensitized us very dangerously to what is crazy, what's insane, what's bizarre, what's inappropriate. But to me, the most remarkable thing that happened in the last week or so. And it's partially remarkable because it got almost no reaction. Now, part of that's because it was over the Christmas holiday, but Donald Trump actually said publicly that we need to move on with our lives with regard to the allegations of Russia hacking into quote unquote, hacking into our election to help him beat Hillary Clinton. Once again, expressing skepticism about the conclusions of our own intelligence agencies in an effort to defend or deflect criticism away from Vladimir Putin and Russia. Now, that alone would have been extraordinary. Amazing. It's just flat out ridiculous. Dangerous. But that's only half of why I'm mentioning this. When Donald Trump made this statement, He did so with Don King standing next to him after they had met with each other. Don King in a denim jacket with a giant, a huge Donald Trump button, waving numerous American flags. I believe he had the flag of Israel. He might have had the flag of some other countries with his big old smile and his gold teeth. Don King is one of the worst human beings On the planet, he is convicted of killing somebody. It's manslaughter, but it was really murder. He stomped them to death. He has stolen tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars from prize fighters, 
boxers over the years whose lives he has destroyed. He is a lying snake. And not only does he get a meeting with Trump, he gets a post-meeting dual press conference. And by the way, Trump has not done that with too many of the people he's met with. He did it with Kanye West and Don King. And so for Donald Trump to make this statement, which is, if it would have been made by Obama under the same circumstances, everything reversed, the right would be going bananas. And instead, we all have to now sit on our hands and go, oh, wow, that was interesting. Let's, 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 can we move on, please, quickly? And by the way, conservative media backing Trump on this whole Putin-Russia issue. Fox News, in fact, Trump praised Fox News Channel, which is totally inappropriate for a president-elect president elect to do. He criticized the take of CNN and MSNBC on Russia and Putin, praised that of Fox News Channel. Fox News Channel has taken the Trumpian position. So Trump is pro-Fox because Fox is suddenly pro, pro-Putin. Matt Drudge, who runs the Drudge Report, basically the propaganda arm of the Trump campaign, claimed that he was attacked, his website was attacked by the U.S. government. Folks, how did we get to the point where everything is upside down? How did this happen? Everything is upside down. Now, all of a sudden, the United States is the bad guy to Donald Trump. Our intelligence agencies are the bad guys to our president-elect and to Fox News Channel. Somehow Putin is not a bad guy, and sometimes he's a good guy, and he's definitely a smart guy, according to Trump and his tweets. It's absolutely extraordinary. Utterly amazing. And the, and the conservative media continues to embarrass itself. By the way, one other thing you can find at Fox, at, uh, not Fox, you won't find this at Fox for sure, but you'll find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com, is a New York Times article on the conservative media and fake news where I'm actually quoted fairly prominently. It's an interesting article, but what I found fascinating by it, about it is that, you know, the New York Times has clearly, especially after this election, lost a lot of its influence. But there's still a certain percentage of the population to whom the New York Times is the Bible. My father is absolutely in that category. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my life when my father said something about sports that surprised me that he had any knowledge of it at all. And I'll say to him, oh, I, so I guess the New York Times must have done a feature on Tiger Woods this week. And he'll immediately laugh because that's exactly what happened. My father reads the New York Times from beginning to end. And, and if it's not in the Times, it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. If it is in the Times, it matters and it must be true. The, despite the fact that I've told him for decades the Times is vastly overrated and, and a liberal rag. So I did an interview with the Times, never even told anybody about it, never even looked for it because I was so certain that my father and his friends would freak out if it was ever used and that they would alert me. Sure enough, the day this, the article comes out, I never hear from my dad on these kind of things. I'm, I'm, I wake up to an email chain between my dad and all of his New York Times fan friends in the Northeast, all excited about the fact that I was quoted in the New York Times. <laughs> it's, just, just, it's hilarious on so many levels, especially considering the fact that to most conservatives in this day and age, what the New York Times says not only isn't true, it doesn't even matter. It must n- not be true because, as we all know, they're anti-Trump. And if you're anti-Trump, you can't be telling the truth. And that, to me, is the worst part of this whole Trump thing. We're living in a post-Trump, post-truth Trump world where not only do you have to back Trump on what your opinion is, you have to back Trump on what the facts are. And that's where I draw the line. And I just can't do that. Facts are facts. Trump doesn't have the power to change facts. And that's why we've dumped the radio show, why we're now doing this podcast, This has been hour number one, the first hour of the World According to Zig podcast. Hour number two, you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But before you go, if you sleep and you use sheets, do yourself a tremendous favor and listen to this important message. 
Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are... Mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well... <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like... Mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again? <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.